welcome to this presentation of Bethel Family Church. We hope you enjoy listening and that it helps you to grow closer to Jesus. Those of you who don't know me, I'm Joe Habermel. Uh, the reason I sound like this is because I'm Canadian. Uh, by birth, but I've been living in Australia for 29 years now. So if every now and then I throw in an Australian-sounding thing, it's because of 29 years of training. (laughs) (laughs) Trained by my wife, yeah. Just by way of introduction, I thought I might show you a picture. This is my family, and uh, this photo was taken uh, the week before COVID struck. And that was my daughter, Lily, the uh, floral-dressed one in the middle. That's uh, her wedding day. So from uh, from that left to this right, that's uh, my son-in-law, Luke, uh, who's six foot four and is a giant. My daughter, Charlotte, and our granddaughter, Evelyn, in her arms. She's now two, so that picture is severely out of date. Um, If you want, afterwards, I'm happy to show you volumes of pictures (laughs) on my phone, right? Proud grandpa. Uh, then my son-in-law, Lockie, and my daughter, Lily, and then my beautiful wife, Rick Jody, in the red, and then that's myself there, appropriately dressed by my wife for all formal occasions. <laughs> the reason I'm also showing you that picture is because this, to me, is, in a way, a, reaff- a, an, a reaffirmation of something I want to talk about today. This, this, that group of people are in a sense, my payday. They are the thing that I always wanted and the thing that I'm so grateful that I have. You know, there's lots of things that you could consider to be a reward in life. You know, some people think it's about money or sometimes they think about adventure or they think about opportunities or importance or something like that. But for me, those people there are everything I love and I'm so grateful for what God gave me. Anybody ever feel like that? Like sometimes it's moments like that where you look and you go, I thank you, Jesus, that you saved my soul when I was 17 years old because that's what you gave me. Before I go on, I just wanted to just give a a prophecy for this church. I I really felt as, as I was playing there that what you're experiencing now is the change in air pressure that comes when there's a change in season, when there's a change in weather. And I felt like God was saying that he's changing the atmosphere of, of the city, of this church, and he's doing it so that he can bring the new rain, and he's going to bring the new revival. And he's, I just really felt that you guys are on the cusp of, of a blessed change, and there's going to be the rain of the Spirit poured out upon you. And I really felt that for you guys, uh, Caleb and Carrie, that this this is a season thing, and the seasons are changing for you. And as one season doesn't have the same productivity as another season, so in this season you'll see more fruit for less work. And you'll be like, but why? It did the same thing. (laughs) But I just feel like there will be more change in people as you minister to them. But also I really feel like the ministry uh, expressions of this church will change. It won't just be what you've done. It'll be new things in the new season. So, Lord, bring the new season. Release the grace of your spirit, Lord, to bring about the new life that only Christ 
can bring, but also only Christ has the authority to bring. So in the name and the authority of Jesus Christ to release this new season upon this church, Lord, this new season on its leadership, this new season on this city, Lord, and I release a harvest of souls, Lord, in this community. And in the authority of Jesus' name, I command them to come in obedience to you to receive your anointing and your grace. Lord, I bring them in. Lord, bring about the fullness of your desire for this town. Lord, to bring about the glory of Christ in this community. We pray in Jesus' name. I want to explain this whole thing. This is my first picture, but also it's my most important idea. Because I believe in seeds. Um, I've just finished writing a book on seeds. I didn't know it was about that when I started, but it turned out to be all about seeds. Um, uh, I'm editing it now, so it'll probably see the light of day in about 25 years (laughs) when I get the courage to publish. But seeds are interesting things, aren't they? Did you ever get those seeds when you were like in kindergarten? Someone gave you like a little bean seed and they put you in a glass jar. Did you guys do that? And they like you put it in, you got a wet paper towel and they stuck the seed in there and you watched it grow. And you're like, ah. Do you know why they do that now with a glass jar? It's because they used to give kids seeds in dirt to watch them grow. But you can't watch things grow in dirt, can you? And so kid after kid would dig up the seed to see how it was doing. And do you know that the seeds don't do so well once they're dug, right? The seeds are fantastic. They, if you've got one seed, you have got food for the entire world because seeds get more seeds, right? Yeah, but, but critically, um, there's something that has to happen to a seed before the seed is going to become what it's supposed to become. And, and this is expressed when Jesus said this. Now, this is Jesus talking about his soon-to-come crucifixion, but he's explaining not just the crucifixion, But he's saying, this is the wisdom of the crucifixion. So he says, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life will lose it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, well, there my servant will be also. And if anybody serves me, the Father will honor him. This is a, like, I mean, it's logical. Has anybody here ever had anything to do with farming? Anyone? Yeah, you, yeah, we were talking about that last night. Farming is, this is something that you're never, ever going to see. Listen, if you're driving through the country and you see a farmer who has just sown his seeds, you are never going to see him on the side of the field going, Oh, gosh, you poor little seeds. You are so great in the barn. I lose the comment, I look at you, and you are so cute. Now it's over. Now you're dead. It's over. I can't believe it. You had a good run, seeds, but now you're dead. And we're never going to see you again. It's over. You're lost. You're gone. No, you never see that, do you? You also probably never hear farmers in Australia with a deep south accent. Um, For some reason, farmers in my head are always deep south. uh, But not Australia deep south, unfortunately, because of my programming. But you're never going to see a farmer upset about sown seeds. Why? Why is that? Because he's excited about the fact that every single one of those seeds or most of the seeds are going to produce a lot more seeds, right? 
like, in fact, he's probably really enthusiastic at, and anticipating the reward of it, right? He's not going to, he's going to be going, look at this, look at that, look at, look at how good the soil is, look at how good the rain is, look at how good the fertilizer is, look at this, look at, we're going to get so much, the crops are going to be so big, I'm going to get so much food, it's going to be amazing, I'm going to feed all these people, get all this stuff, buy a four-wheel drive. <laughs> right, because farmers also all want four-wheel drives, Right. So everybody's anticipating, and Jesus is talking about his crucifixion, and rather than say, listen, guys, you know, I know every time I say I'm going to die, you go, no, no, it'll never happen to you, Lord. Jesus is like, you guys, you got your brains wrong. It it is not a sad thing for one life to die so that many can emerge. Isn't, Isn't that... Isn't that just like logical? Isn't it wisdom that if, if you die, then there's multitudes. If you don't die, if you don't sow that life, then you get zero result. So Jesus is actually making complete common sense. And like anybody in his day was arguing, nobody's going, oh, Jesus, what are you talking about? Don't you know how seeds work? He's making complete sense. See, there's something about the gift of death that is the pathway to life. The gift of death is actually the pathway to life. Now, I don't mean physically dying, just in case you mix my metaphor. Please don't go kill yourself. Or better yet, please don't kill anyone else. Because if you're like, I think that'll be helpful, it won't be, all right? You'll be in jail, it'll be terrible. What Jesus is saying is that I want to give you the gift of being able to die and live again. That's, that's why in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul talks with glowing praise about baptism. He, say, he says, we are buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in his death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. One of the things that I I love about Jesus is is Jesus never looks at the moment. He always looks at the fruit. He never never stops and says, this is where you are now, and that's all you'll ever be. Because Jesus sees the potential in everything. Everything everything has fruit. Everything has possibility. Everything is amazing. And Jesus teaches us to follow him in death, baptism ritually, but also, in a sense, we need to recognize that if we die with Christ, we give up our lives. If you want to join with Christ, you give up your life. And everybody sees that as bad advertising. Come and be a Christian. What do you get? You get to die. Well, no thank you very much. (laughs) Yeah, God gets control of your money from that day on. Well, I think I'll do fine on my own. God gets control of your relationships. God gets control of your desires. You get to die. I feel like I'm a terrible salesman. Like, is anyone buying that product? No, like everybody wants, no, 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 I want, I want more me. I want more, I want more of whatever I got going on. I want more, I want more of what I want. And Jesus says, no, 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 let me give you the gift that will keep on giving. You get to die with me. Because if you get die with me, then you share my resurrection life. And you can have your life. You can have, you just, just keep living it but you'll notice that every single day will feel like a waste. Every day will feel like one less day. But if you give your life to me, it actually turns into an enormous blessing, a a fruitful result, an amazing outcome that you could never predict. And the more you experience the death of Jesus, the more you live the death of Jesus, the more you walk in his resurrection life. The more you give up your desires and walk in his desires, the better your life gets. 
So actually what Jesus is giving us is a gift that no other person, no other religion, no other power can possibly give you, and that is he gives you the opportunity to die. In fact, I think for me, it's the most blessed gift I've ever received. Every time I'm in an argument with my wife, he gives me the blessing of dying to myself. Because have you ever won an argument with your wife? No. No, 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 no. I was explaining to the guys last night what she'll be right means. Eventually, you'll discover that she was right. That's what she'll be right means. You'll, be, you'll regret that you were, ever thought you were right. No, just... Every, every time I have an opportunity to live for myself and choose something that's just for me, I'm so grateful that Jesus gave me the option to die to myself. Because, listen... Without Christ, you have to keep living for yourself. And Jesus gives us this wonderful gift. He says, you come and join with me in death, and then you can really live. And I think that this idea is really undervalued. You see, discipleship to Jesus means you get the opportunity to die with the promise of a resurrection. That a life surrendered to Jesus and dead to self is really the opportunity to live your most fruitful life. Think about that. A life surrendered to Jesus and dead to self is the opportunity to live your most fruitful life. I, I was 17 years old when I got to know Jesus. Um, friends uh, brought me along to a youth group. It was a youth group in a church about a third of the size of this church. The pastor, who is 65 years old, decided that he wanted to reach some young people. So he got some kids of some of the grandmas in the church to start coming to a group. Some of those kids were my friends. So they invited me along to youth. The youth pastor was that old that sometimes we would go on bike rides for a youth event, and he would literally get off the bike when we stopped and fall over. He, he just could not... He was just trying some, And we would play volleyball, and we would do all sorts of things, and I was there to try to pick up chicks... And uh, no interest in Jesus whatsoever. And Jesus reached me when I was 17 years old. And because of that, all of these years later, I haven't wasted any time. I could have wasted those 35 years. But Jesus saved me from wasting my life by drawing me into a a life that's fruitful. And it means something more forever, not just in the moment. So Jesus has this logic. He says... If you, whoever loses his, loves his life, loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Yeah, it's this, it's this wisdom of opposites. Basically, he says, if you actually want to preserve your life, like you're thinking, I want this, and I want to have this entertainment, I want these people, I want to do this with my time, I want to go here, I want to do that. If you want to keep your life, guaranteed you'll lose it. Not like somebody will come and rob you and take it. It will just be consumed up, and it will be gone. The moments, the opportunities to be different will be gone. You will only ever be able to live what's for you. So Jesus says, if you love your life, you're going to lose it. But if you reverse it and you go, I, I wish I could get away from the life that I'm currently enslaved in and live a life where I can actually make a difference and be part of what God's doing, if I, if I hate my life and choose his love, his life then I'm going to find life. Whatever you try to preserve, you'll lose. If you don't bury the seed in the ground, 
it never produces fruit. So Galatians, Paul says this to the, to the Galatian people. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see, Paul gets the logic. He's saying, a long, long time ago, years before that, Jesus Christ laid down his life so that Paul could have life. So Paul's saying, I'm the fruit of it. If Christ didn't die for me, I wouldn't have life. So you know what? I've decided that the way of Jesus is the only way to live. I want to be crucified with Christ. I want to go and die with him so that I can have that life. And as far as you want to see me now, I live a crucified life. I don't live anymore. The only life I live is Christ in me. And I live for him. The Apostle Paul, in his day, was probably one of the most, you know, he wasn't the most, but he was a very smart man. He was, in fact, one of the leaders that said, I think that your great intelligence is making you crazy. Because he was arguing with him about trying to get the governor saved. So Paul is, has lots of opportunities for human praise, for human reward, for human success. And Paul says, I I count all of that as dirt, as dung, as useless. I just want the life that Christ... And you know what? 2,000 years later, we're reading his words in a book. Did it work? Yeah, he said the resurrected life, the crucified life, is the life that produces the fruit. You know, Jesus also said that where where I am, there my servant will be. There's this story that I love from the book of... uh, a book of Luke. Uh, book of Luke is the only book because it, it shares a lot of the stories that Mary, uh, Jesus' mother, told Luke about the early life of Jesus. So it's the only book that we find these early stories. And in this story, Jesus has gone with his family unit down from Nazareth, which was, you know, it's a bit of a journey. They've taken the journey down to Jerusalem because, if you don't know, Jewish people were commanded to attend the house of the Lord once a year for, to offer a sacrifice. So they were going on their pilgrimage. And you know what? Probably the whole village was going with them, like, or, or lots of people anyway. So they're just caravan style, right? Everybody's, everybody's rounding up. There's kids. There's dogs. There's goats. There's whatever. There's, you can probably imagine. It's a, it's a stink show moving through. There's unwashed people, dogs, goats, everybody, right? So they all go down to the temple, and, and uh, they do the, all of the things that they're required to do under the law, the devoted parents, and... They're on their, way, on their way home, and they discover that Jesus is missing. Because anyone ever left your kids behind anywhere? Yeah. Caleb, yeah, confession, thank you. I, ha- I don't think I've ever left mine, but I've panicked like crazy when I thought that I have. Can you imagine how upset his parents were? I mean, Jesus is 12, so he's, you know, he's going to... Anyway, is it worse losing a toddler or a teenager? That's the question. Anyway, they look for him. They go down to Jerusalem again. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And his parents saw him. They were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son? Son? Because Jewish women are fantastic at guilting by one word. Son? Why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. <laughs> Anybody of your parents good at manipulation? Oh, my mama, she was good. 
she could manipulate me so well. You know, one time she, I, my brother and I were fighting when we were kids. We were fighting in like a multi-level house. We were fighting downstairs, and I smashed something, or somebody smashed something. And I just hear this voice from my mom's bedroom, Joey, because that's what they called me. Joey, come up here. So I went in. My mom's still in bed because it was early morning fight. She said, what happened? I said, oh, Dan and I were fighting. I smashed the lamp. She said, right. Didn't I tell you not to do that? Yep. Come over here. Why? You're getting it. I'm like, what? <laughs> Come over here. So she made me back up to the side of the bed, pull my trousers down so that she could smack me. She didn't even get out of bed. <laughs> I thought, man, I got to learn the lesson of that lady. Talk about lazy parenting. She, she had me that trained. I'd come and line up for a smack. Anyway, your father and I have been in great distress. And Jesus says, why in the world would you ever think that? He, he, he says this, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. You know, it, it, there's, if you don't read the Greek part of the Bible, that word house is, is actually not there. Um, that's why some translations have it business, but the word business isn't in there. It actually just says, I must be about my father's. I must be about my father's. Basically, what Jesus is saying is, you guys brought me here. What do you think was going to happen? Like, why would you be at all surprised that you brought me into my father's workshop and I went to work? Why are you surprised about that? Does that not make sense? Because Jesus is saying, my stepdad, carpenter. Jesus, carpenter, carpenter right? Like, why? Because it's like, why? Is every single minute of Jesus' early life... Every, where's dad? Dad's in the shop. Dad's making stuff so that, now the, he wasn't technically just the word we use for carpenter. He was a tecton, which is a builder, which is somebody who make, might make houses, might make boats, might do a lot of things. And he was a builder of things. And so every time Jesus thought about what does the family need, it all came through helping dad. Does that make sense? So if you're wanting to be a good son and you saw dad out there in the carpentry shop, what do you do? Well, you join him, right? Like it's obvious, isn't it? Like, am I talking, uh, like Jesus is like, of course I was in my father's workshop and I took up his business. But then, of course, you brought me to my real dad's house. His dad is the true Lord of the house of worship. And Jesus was teaching people how to worship. Because that's what his father's work is. That's what his father's business is. Now, here's something I need to ask you. Do you, do you feel like God's business is his business and you're doing your own business? Or do you feel like God's business is the business and we're all participating in the business? You see, there's an, an identity thing that happens. When you really identify with somebody as father, you start to pick up their family habits. You start to pick up their ways. You start to pick up the responsibilities that they carry. And nobody makes you. Nobody's like, hey, get in here, work in your father. It's just like, no, you just feel like it's, it's a responsibility that you somehow own because of relationship. Do you, do you know what I mean? You know, like, if, 
you know, if you've got a family member that's not doing the right thing, it's everybody's responsibility to help them out. And you don't have to tell, if I have to tell you this, then you don't get it. But it's, it's a family thing that you do what the Father does, right? And Jesus is like, you brought me. So he's talking to this woman at a well in Samaria on a different trip between the two places. And he meets with this woman. And what does he do? He starts teaching her about worship. Because Jesus is the one that equips us to worship the Father. He makes us to be worshipers of the Father. If you think I can worship God and you don't have Jesus' help, you're fooling yourself. You cannot live a life of worship without Jesus because Jesus is the way of worship. Jesus is the, the one who brings the new season of worship. So he will need Christ. And everywhere Christ goes, do you know what he does? He turns people into worshipers. Everywhere he goes. He can take a guy who's a tax collector who's hiding in a tree and say, Zach, I'm having lunch at your house. And everybody goes, oh, Zach, he's bad. Jesus is like, I know, but watch. I'll make him into a worshiper. What does he do? Immediately he starts giving away his money. Because Jesus brings worship to life, and he's the one that does that. So everywhere he goes, he's bringing worship because he's the Father's workshop. He's here. It's happening. Now, Jesus said this one time, I'm not going to call you servants anymore, for the servant does not know what his master's doing. I called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You didn't choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus is saying this. If I have to tell you, you don't get it. If I have to tell you, you really don't get it, do you? Because he said, like, I'm, you're not a slave here. Do you know there's some people who, who, who go to church or, or follow Christ, and everything they do for God is work. I have to show up and do this. I have to show up and do that. They need this help. Oh, what a burden. I can't believe it. I've got to play drums. I've got to drive all the way to Wyala, and then I've got to play drums. Oh, I can't believe it. Oh, I'm driving to Wyala. Oh, God, I'm doing this for you. I don't know how to do it, but you're making me do it. Like, is that what, is that what God's really looking for, a bunch of robots, you know, things that he bosses around. He goes, hey, you, you know, he's, Jesus is like, if you don't take my habits on board as your own, if, if I'm going to stop making you a, being a slave, I'm going to let you be my friend. And you think that you picked me, but actually I went looking and picked you. And the reason I picked you is so that your life could be fruitful. So pick up my family ways because where, my, where I am, there my servant will be also. If I serve in my father's house and then you become part of my family, then you serve in the father's house. It's just natural, isn't it? Now, Jesus said this. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. Here's a, here's a question that I've had for a long time. If I spend my life doing God's business and building God's house, well, who will build mine? Anybody ever wonder that? It's a choice, right? Like, if you do God's thing, well, that doesn't really leave you a lot of time to do your own thing, does it? Because you're spending your time doing God's thing, and you're thinking, well, how is this going to work out? I I remember being a a youth pastor years and years ago, because I'm now ancient of days, when I was a youth pastor, I had, I had Charlotte. Charlotte was just a, a baby. 
And uh, as she grew, of course, I love spending time with my daughter. Who else is going to spend time? I, like I want to spend time with my daughter. She likes spending time with me. We have great time. And then sometimes when I would go off to do youth camps, and I'd sometimes be gone for a week or a weekend, my, my daughter would, would come to me and, and complain about the fact that I had to go away again to do God's work. And I used to think, God, is this, is this fair? Is it going to work out? If I actually go and, and preach at this youth camp and do this thing, and I miss out on that whole weekend with my daughter or that whole week with my daughter, then who's going to be able to bring my daughter up? Look how she'll be left without a father who's, who's loving her, encouraging her, building her up. This is just not fair. I'm sure I'm serving all these other kids. That's fine. Thank you very much. But what about my kids? Or what about this? If I thought, anybody else worry about money? Or am I the only one? I think, God, if I do your work, one of my very first ministry jobs, I worked for Vancouver Teen Challenge, working with street kids and gang members on the streets of Vancouver. I got paid $2 an hour. And uh, because that's all I made, the only place I could afford to stay was in the Bible College. They had a, 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 I guess it was like a book cupboard closet, it was where they kept, like, the pens and the papers and books and that kind of thing. And there was just enough room on the floor to roll out a mat. And that's where I, sla- that's where I slept. I slept on a mat in the closet because I made $2 an hour so that I could serve Jesus. <laughs> and now, this thought occurred to me. This might be a thing to you. How in the world are you ever going to have enough money? Like, how are you going to... And this is the concern. I'm telling God, if I'd spent all my time doing your thing, where's my thing? What's going to happen? And this story I'm going to share with you changed my life. In the, in the book of 2 Samuel, it's the story of David as he begins to establish his kingdom. And after he's made kind of peace with the enemies around him, in a sense, that he's not at war all the time, It says, now when the king had lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Nathan said to the king, go, do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. I love it. Like David's just one day, he's walking around his giant house of cedar going, this is awesome. Can you imagine what that smelled like? A house made of cedar? It's like living in a sauna. He's just, he's smelling the cedar all the time. He's like, this is a beautiful, I love my house. And he looks outside and God's camping. God's got a tent. He's got a house, God's got a tent. He's like, no. He's, David's thinking is like my wife's thinking. The camping for my wife Jody is a four-star hotel. That's camping. You're the same? Yeah. Jody does not like camping at all. So God's look, David looks out and God's camping. He's like, that's not okay. So he tells Nathan the prophet, I want to build God a house. And Nathan goes, you're awesome, do it. And then Nathan went and asked God. You should always ask God before you say yes anyway. When Nathan asked God, and God went, well, how would this look if my house was built by a, God that, by a guy whose theme song is David has killed his tens of thousands? That's a bad theme song to go with my house. <laughs> so we're not going to have the guy who's killed thousands as the builder of my house. So tell David, no, but. God says to him, that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. He said, go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Issue number one, would you build me a house to live in? Number two, 
I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people from Israel to Egypt to this day. I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. So here's the thing. God has never once asked for a house. He's like, I'm cool in the tent because tents can't contain me. Houses can't contain me. It doesn't matter what you do. You won't contain me. And I'm not problem at all in the tent. But you don't like being in a tent, and I love it. So this is what you go and tell David. He says, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you who shall come after from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of the king forevermore. And this is the, this is the promise that really changed me. God said to me, if you build my house, I'll build your house. But it's not, again, it's not about the cedar or the tent. Your house is your family. Your house is who you are, not the building that you live in. But David said, God, I want to build your house. And God said, you know what? I love your heart. That just makes me want to build your house. If if I build, I, years ago I preached uh, this idea, this part of the sermon I preached, it was in, preaching in Papua New Guinea. And uh, one of the pastors there, Pastor Cletus, was my interpreter uh, for, because I, I can't speak pidgin, so I would speak in English and he would translate to pidgin. And, uh, and it's, it's fantastic fun to do, because I could get him to say anything I wanted him to say. I would say, Pastor Cletus is awesome, and he translated into pidgin, and you have to say it. Anyway. <laughs> and Pastor Cletus had health issues, and he had giant concerns about how his family was going to go if he wasn't there financially to support them, to direct them, to encourage them. Pastor Cletus had a lot of burdens. And he was faithfully serving the Lord, but it was wearing him down. So I picked this message to preach so that he would have to say this. And I made Pastor Cletus say, if I build God's house, God will build my house. If I build God's house, God will build my house. If I build God's because I get to shout and make him shout too, because right, he has to match me, right? So he is out there in front of all of these people confessing this wonderful truth. If I focus on building God's house, God will build my house. He, everywhere we go, he would say it back to me. God's building my house. I'm going to build God's house. God's gonna, we'd drive around. He'd say to me all of the time, I got to preach this message again at his funeral. Because he did die. But he died probably about four years after he confessed this. And he'd spent those four years building God's house. And his family unit was blessed. They were encouraged. They were, they were locked in. They were financially secure. It was a complete miracle. But because in that last moment, I helped him focus back on building God's house, his family was secure because he secured God's family. Wouldn't you, like, wouldn't you love to have God as the builder of your house? Wouldn't you have got God the builder of your legacy? God the builder of your children? God the builder of your hopes? Wouldn't you rather that than you? Because, I mean, you might be talented. You might be the most amazing parent ever, but you're not as good as God. You might be a great business person, but you're not as good as God. 
You might be great with money. You're not as good as God. Like, you're just not comparable. Would you not rather have the expert build your house, right? And that blessing means that Christ, who is of the lineage of David, was built up and became the one who ultimately builds the house. And you are part of that house. He's not talking about the temple that Solomon built. He's talking about Jesus and the living temple of God that stands before you. You see, God can do it. If you build God's house, God will build yours. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Have you got time for one little story? Last night, all the guys were telling stories about how stupid we can be. And I think I, t- I, taught, I, think I topped a list of <laughs> frequency of stupidity. Let me tell you a, a really dumb thing. So this is how the story goes. I've been working at Teen Challenge on Granville Street, Vancouver, for probably about two years. In all that time, I'd build up all these relationships with all of these young people. Like, they were criminal, gang, you know, punk, skinheads. Uh, There's one guy that had this giant blue mohawk that, you know, he put it up with, uh, you know, model glue. It would just sort of lock like that. It was dangerous. You could jab people with it. it. People people who were so different from me. I grew up in a suburb of a suburb. I lived a plain, ordinary, you know, life of just nothing crazy. And these guys had, had experienced nothing but violence and abandonment and neglect. We were so different. But for a couple of years, I had loved these kids. One day, I'm standing there. I'm working in the... At the, at the counter, and this guy comes in. And our policy was it's teen challenge, so only teens can be in the drop-in center. This guy who came in clearly was like in his 40s or something. And he was, he was a native uh, uh, Canadian, so Aboriginal Canadian person, but uh, I've never seen uh, Canadian Indians. They, so I'm, why I'm saying that, they're not from India. We just called them Indians because of Columbus and his goofy compass. Anyway, Aboriginal Canadian, they grow really long, thick hair sometimes. So this guy had this giant mass of hair, black, and there was like sticks and twigs. He'd clearly been sleeping rough, right? He, was, he had this torn shirt, and he had these giant muscles. He was the most scary person I've ever seen in my life. He was... And he comes in, and he just opens the door, and he just goes, I won't say what he's saying. I'll just, he's screaming and shouting at all of the kids, swearing and cursing and threatening them. And and so I just shout out to him, I might. I didn't say might because I hadn't been in Australia yet, but you, I'm translating. (laughs) Hey, bro. He said, you can't come in here. You're you're too old. Just make it simple. Not you're drunk and abusing everyone. You're too old. So he just keeps shouting. So I thought, oh. so I went around the counter, and I went up to him, and I stood about five feet away from him, and I said, sorry. And he was like, here. I'm like, sorry. You have to go, you know, you're too old to be in here. He just looked at me, and he's like, and you're going to make me. You know, one of those you and what army styles. Like, because like, I'm this skinny 19-year-old kid with glasses and thinking, I got no hope. And this guy is just a giant who could clearly tear me apart. 
So I said, I said to him, sorry, man, you got to go. And he's like, yeah, 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 get me So I just said, stop. I'm going to walk over to the counter and pick up the telephone. And if you're not gone by the time I pick up that telephone, because this was the days before mobile phones, in case young people, you need to know that. <laughs> used to phone call people. used to have go to this thing on a wall, and it had a cord. And, and anyway. <laughs> so I said, I'm going to go to the phone. If you're still here by the time I get to that phone, I'm calling the cops. They'll, they'll make you go. I'm not going to make you go. You, oh, the cops will make you go. So I walked over to the counter, and I knew he wasn't going to go. <laughs> and I picked up the phone. And I turned around, and he was still there like, uh, how is this going to go? So by then, we were about maybe 15 feet away from each other. And I turned around, and I faced him. And it was like one of those showdown. Skinny white guy, giant Aboriginal Canadian guy. (laughs) And as I'm standing there looking at him, he rushed at me. He picked up his fists. And he ran full bore at me, ready to clean me up. As soon as he got in front of my face, he stopped. And I saw his eyes go, oh, oh. And then he turned and ran. Smashed out the door and ran down the street. And then 15 street kids and skinheads chased him down the street. Because, And then I looked around. And there were about 50 kids that were on their feet, faster than I could react. And they were ready to defend me with their lives. And I asked the kids, well, first they ran off. And the guy that was in the front was the guy with the blue mohawk. His name was Mikester. And Mikester uh, needed to wear glasses but wouldn't because you cannot be a cool looking skinhead with glasses it just is not the look <laughs> you just you just can't scare anybody <laughs> the glasses ruin the whole thing so Mikester loses them because it's at night and Mikester can't see anything so he chases them and like, he gets away and he co- I comes, he co- Mikester comes back in and I go did you get him because if he got him that was dangerous and I said did you get him he said, nah I lost him I couldn't see him I said what would you have done if you had got him he said, I would have killed him. And I said to the other kids, what would you have done if he had hit me? And they said, we would have killed him. Now, I'm so grateful that he didn't hit me because I didn't want anybody to die. But I learned this lesson. And this is a lesson that I think everybody underestimates. So can if you just please be serious and look at me. If you think you know anything about loyalty, you have not met the real God. Because if you invest and serve him, he's going to honor you. He never leaves a debt unpaid. He never goes, oh, that was nice of you to do that for me, but I won't do anything for you. If you know, these street kids taught me something about loyalty that I just did not understand. I served them and they were willing to die for me. That kind of loyalty is in God's heart in abundance. And if you build God's house, you have the most loyal, the most passionate, the most strong, the most clever, the most integrous person in the universe that will labor to build your house. Because where, your, where his servant is, there you are, 
and he will honor you. I want to give you this picture of a fellow. This is Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is probably one of the greatest preachers in American history. He uh, preached some sermons that really transformed the nation. And he lived a life serving God 100%, gave his whole life, his whole career, his whole income. He gave everything to serve the Lord. And somebody did a study on what happened to his family. And this was his descendants. From Jonathan and Sarah Edwards, who were nobodies before Christ got a hold of them, from them came one vice president of the United States, three U.S. senators, three major mayors of large cities, three state governors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 65 professors, 66 physicians, 100 lawyers. You've got to forgive him for that. 100 pastors and 100 cross-cultural missionaries and others were leaders in industry, society, and banking. You see, Jonathan Edwards proves the point that if you invest in God's, he invests in your house. And that's why I love that picture of my family. Because God made those kids while I was serving his kids. God grew them with wisdom and confidence and courage. And my kids serve the Lord zealously because God was doing that in them. This is what I think a lot of people think, it's costing me too much to serve God, therefore I must pull back and invest in my own. That is a false economy because then it's just you building. You invest in God's house and let Him do the work in your own house to make your house Not what you would have made it, but what he can make it. You see, the reason I'm bringing you this message today is because there is a beautiful promise in dying. There is a beautiful outcome. It's the resurrection. It's the glory of Jesus Christ. And I think that too often, everybody's got our attention on mine and this and my stuff. And COVID has made us all about, oh, well, what about my space and my things and my money and my caravan and my holidays and my, 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 my. It is a lie. Because if you try to keep your life, you'll lose it. But if you say, okay, I am going to lose my life with Christ. Therefore, I will gain the life that Christ can give me. You will be blessed. And so I say these things to you for this reason, that God is asking you to invest in His and in Him. He's asking you not because it's a a threat or because you have to. You're not not being a slave. You're being invited into something that will bring fruitfulness. So you're one seed and see God multiply your seed. If you've got a, a talent or a skill or an opportunity or a desire or money or something, God is calling you to invest it in his house. Whatever that means. That might be helping in the church. It might be helping the poor. It might be uh, taking care of a Kids that don't have parents, and it might be going having your own kids. It might, whatever the household of God is, that is where we're called to serve. And that will bring a huge increase and a blessing to your own life. And that, my friends, is the promise of Scripture. If you build his house, he'll build yours. Be confident, but sow your seeds. What have you got to sow? You know, I think there are people here today that are called into ministry, called actually to serve the house of God and serve as pastors and leaders. 
There's people here today that are called to serve in different, like, different ways, using your skills and talents to help people, to grow people, to nurture people in Christ. Some are called to actually serve in the community. But whatever you are called to do, do that thing as your priority and let God... Well, Jesus said it this way. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all the other things will be added to you as well. Don't worry about what you'll eat, what you'll wear, where your holidays are. Work in his work. Do the work of his kingdom and he will add the rest to you as well. Can you receive that word from me today? So, Father, my prayer is that you would take these words that I've shared in these simple stories and that you would turn them into a spiritual life that's at work in every person. Lord, you said that your word is like a seed sown, and it always produces a harvest. So, Father, I pray that your word that I have shared, that it would be a seed inside of every heart of every hearer right now, and it would produce your good fruit in their lives. Lord, I know that there's people here today that it kind of live in that balance of like an equation. They're choosing to, do I invest in God's thing or do I take care of myself? Some have been very discouraged about that, feeling like, well, what's the reward? Where's the payoff? And have maybe forgotten to see how you have been invisibly at work. Lord, other people are feeling the call, but also the challenge of the call, knowing that to serve you, that they have to let go of their own thing. So, Father, I'm praying in both considerations for those who have sowed but feel discouraged and for those who are feeling the challenge to sow their lives. Lord, I pray that you would give faith, faith in you and your word Faith that you will bring about the building that only you can build. That you would build up their families, that you build up their lives, that you build up their consciousness, build up their hearts, build up the person that trusts in you, Lord. And Father, for people that are feeling that call, that call to serve you and give their life in serving you, Lord, I pray that you give them faith to respond with obedience and to trust you, Lord, that you can manage the affairs of their lives to bring them into a good place if they simply trust in you. So, Lord, I pray that you would just bless the hearers of this word, Lord, to give faith, to draw people into serving you. And, Lord, for the people here that are called into ministry, Lord, that have not yet stepped into that, Lord, I pray that you would give them your Holy Spirit's urge to propel them to seek out ministry, to seek out serving your family, to build up your church and your, your people so that they can prosper and thrive. Lord, I pray that you would cause them to seek your face and seek you out so that they can walk in obedience to this call Lord, I pray this in the authority of Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more information or to listen to other podcasts, head to our website at BethelCRC.org.au or check out Bethel Family Church on Facebook.